Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet-friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. We share local information, resources, and support, and opportunities to volunteer for projects that help clean, protect, and repair the environment. This episode is a bonus episode from another show. It includes an interview of a Northern Nevada local who is taking green action through their vocation, volunteer work, or hobby. These stories are interesting and informational and are a great way to get to know our local community better. Today on our podcast, we're speaking with a couple operating a small ranch and using rotational grazing and other sustainable agricultural methods to help heal the land and provide healthier food to people in their area. We're talking with Luke and Shannon Thompson. Luke and Shannon own Blustery Bovine, a six-acre farm in Washoe Valley, Nevada, where they raise cattle, pigs, goats, sheep, and chickens, and supply food to their CSA and farm store. They have been using regenerative land management practices and methods that better care for animals and at the same time help to heal and replenish the health of wildlife, pasture grasses, and the soil. As a family, they keep very busy. When Luke isn't at his day job, he and Shannon are working on their farm and raising their six kids. Welcome, Luke and Shannon. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to speak with you and share with our listeners your path of green action that led you to regenerative farming in Northern Nevada. So I wanted to start by finding out like what type of events in your lives planted the seeds to want to take some kind of green action? Well, I guess I could start by answering this one. Really? So we came into this, I manage a ranch um, separately. So on the side of this as well. And really I was looking at, it was a grass fed operation, the beef cattle side of it. And I was looking at ways that we could improve the forage production and to try to make the place a little bit more profitable. And so my brother also, uh, at the time he was raising grass fed beef as well in California. And UC Davis, the cooperative extension there, they put on a grazing school every year. And so he had invited me to attend that. And I learned a lot from it and kind of sparked my interest in learning about high stock density, low frequency grazing. And so I started, I did another grazing school that was actually put on here in Reno. And then I just started researching a lot and um, started reading stuff from Jim Garrish and Greg Judy and Joel Salatin and uh, Alan Williams and all these kind of people that are kind of pioneering this uh, method of grazing. And so that's kind of what brought us into it. And then really it was kind of the Joel salad and stuff that got us started on doing the poultry and the pigs and the um, all that sort of thing and kind of bringing that into our um, farm as well. So. so it sounded like from the beginning, you kind of had an idea of what you wanted to do in terms of ranching and farming. Did you have a family background in sustainable agriculture or... So I grew up on a cattle ranch, but it was very much more of the conventional production system. So my dad raised uh, cow-calf pairs, and then we sold our calves into, you know, the commodity market. So they went to feedlots. And he, you know, kind of pioneering at that time, doing the retained ownership and stuff like that. But it was still that conventional model. And so I've got, you know, my family background is in that. And then, you know, really it was when I got into college and started looking at different grazing systems and got introduced to grass-fed production that 
kind of drew me into more of that production model and then it built up from there. So our place is so small. We only own six acres. So we really couldn't mess around with um, not having um, good quality grass. Before BLM was letting us graze, um, we only had three cows, Dexter cows, so they're smaller, um, but we were able to graze them on our six acres and we only needed to buy hay uh, for about two or three weeks in the winter. Luke would stockpile the grass in the fields and just move them every single day to new new uh, new grass and then it just kept improving and we got more grass and it got thicker and we got new species of grass and even new species of animals we, all the frogs and the snake uh, which I've learned to like snakes <laughs> um, but yeah now we've even got like water birds and it's just turning into this beautiful environment that we're really enjoying. Excellent so for people that are not familiar with what sustainable agriculture is and like the Joel Salatin um, method. Could you explain it? So really, you know, for us, the basis of it is um, the cattle. So I'll kind of describe them more. Basically, what we're trying to do is to mimic nature in the way that we graze the cows. So, you know, pre here in the United States, pre-European settlement, there was a lot of grazing animals. Let's just take the, um, you know, the Great Plains as an example. There was a lot of grazing animals out there, mostly bison, but there was also elk and deer and antelope and all sorts of stuff out there and because they had there was a lot of wolves at the time too there was a lot of predator pressure on them they would bunch up in these tight herds and then um, because of that they were grazing small areas at you know all at once and so they were eating a lot of the forage they were trampling what they didn't eat to the ground and then because grazing animals are only about 70 percent efficient at at utilizing that forage, a lot of that was coming out the back end as manure. And so that adds a lot of carbon to the soil. And then also because uh, they were all bunched up by the wolves and that kind of forced them to migrate around a lot. And so those areas where there was a lot of pressure from these grazing animals, it got a lot of rest because they, you know, denuded the, the area and there was no grass there. So they had to move in order to survive. And so really what we do is we try to mimic that, those interactions between the predators and the grazing animals in our own grazing system. So instead of wolves, we use electric fence kind of as our predator and then the management that I'm also putting into it. So what we do is we have about 120 acres that we graze. It's set up in these uh, strips that are easily divided up using portable fencing. And so we move our cows every single day. I'll give them about a day's worth of forage at a time. And then I go out the next day and we just move them over one paddock um, to another day's worth of forage. And by doing that, um, they're not able to come back and re-graze the grass that they were on before, and it allows it a long time to uh, recover. So it's really that kind of cyclic nature of the grazing that helps build the carbon and the organic matter in the soil that makes it regenerative because um, it's adding a lot of fertility that way. Um, all that organic matter is going to increase the the infiltration rate for water and the holding capacity of the water. So it holds water for longer and it really makes it a lot more drought proof and whatnot like that. So it really, you know, it's just adding a lot of fertility without a lot of outside inputs. Really, it's just the, the small amount of infrastructure that we've put in to make the system work. That's great. So do you need to do like any 
addition of other cover crops, or is it basically the biodiversity is kind of building itself? We've seeded a little bit, not really cover crops so much, but we have put some grass seed down on our own property, which is just the five acres of that, about 120 acres. But really, it's just the, um, you know, the cattle grazing and the impact that they're having on the system that's creating the diversity there. Do you see um, changes in the BLM land as well as your own over time? Yeah, so one of the reasons that, or one of the main reasons that we are able to graze the BLM land is because of um, some of the weeds that were starting to come in because it it had been grazed for like eight or nine years before we had come out. And so without that grazing pressure, there was some weeds starting to come in and some uh, particularly bad ones, especially uh, one that's called tall white top. Um, We've really seen a reduction in the amount of that tall white top that's there. So definitely, I think the, the grazing is helping with that. And also, Without the cows consuming the forage, it creates a lot of um, litter from the grass that isn't being taken away. And so that kind of shades out the other grass that's trying to grow and makes for a thinner stand. And then it allows other weeds to come in and gives them the opportunity to kind of take hold. And so clearing some of that, you want some litter, of course, to for shading and um, for adding organic matter to the soil surface, but it's got to be cycling through. And so bringing the cows in, they're clearing some of that out. They're turning it into manure, which makes really good fertilizer. And they're helping to trample some of it down to the soil surface so that the soil life can kind of incorporate that into the soil. So that was a real big help too, that we've really brought down the huge litter mat that was that was being accumulated out there. I noticed it. I, I noticed a huge difference about a month ago. I was coming over the hill from Reno down into Washoe Valley on the new um, freeway. And you can kind of see like a bird's eye view of the valley. And um, I noticed that the whole area where he had been grazing, it just stood out bright green. And the rest of it was just kind of greenish, like mostly brown. But yeah, it just stood out like just bright green. And that's when, yeah, I really realized what a huge difference it had made. So um some of the improvements that you've been having with your land, have you been able to kind of share that with neighboring farms or is it kind of everybody just does what works for themselves? I personally haven't shared it with a ton of people. We did a couple summers ago, there was a group that was coming through. It was made up of several different um, universities and, and other producers from kind of the Midwest area. And they were touring the Western states and kind of looking at different production models and stuff like that. And they actually came out and toured this property that we're running our cows on. And so I was able to meet with them and kind of discuss our grazing system and share with them how it works for us and and how we run it and whatnot. So that was an interesting day. I did not know that they were coming. And uh, all of a sudden there's a tour bus in front of our house. And like, I don't know how many people you think there were. There was a lot of people that unloaded off of there into our yard. I call Luke, I'm like, (laughs) what's going on? (laughs) There's like kids' bikes in the yard and stuff. (laughs) We were not ready. So are you um, hoping to pass along your farm to your children in the future if if they're interested in farming? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons we started this is because eventually we would like to make this a full-time operation that we can bring our kids into it as well. And um, we really enjoy, you know, just spending time with family and, and working with our family members and kind of involving them in the whole process. And definitely we would want one or multiple children to kind of take over the operation. 
operation when we're getting to where to the point where we're not able to run it anymore. So, so, so my understanding is you you also raise chickens in connection with your um, cattle. So, how many chickens are you able to raise, and how does that work? So we run both uh, laying hens and we raise broiler chickens and turkeys as well. And um, right now we've got what, like two dozen hens. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, actually, maybe almost 30. I should go count them. I lose track sometimes. Right. <laughs> so there um, we use electric netting to keep them in. And that's just so that we can kind of mimic the way we graze the cows with the chickens as well. And also the electric netting helps to protect them from predators. And then we have a portable. Yeah, coyotes will get them. Mm-hmm. If that electric netting goes down, we have a portable coop as well. So we can kind of move them around the pasture. And when possible, we like to follow the the grazing animals with them. We also raise sheep and goats as well. So um, the chickens are really good at kind of picking through the manure and, and getting bugs out of it and helping to spread the manure out in pastures and whatnot. So we have those. And then we also have, we raise broiler chickens uh, for meat and we use the Saladin style of chicken tractors to raise them. So it's, it's a, like wooden, a big rectangle. wooden and wire structure with some tin for cover. And it's 10 feet by 12 feet and it's about two feet high. And we move that every single day with the broiler chickens in it. And so they're moving around and and they do eat quite a bit of grass, but we have to supplement them with grain because they're monogastrics and they can't utilize the forage as much as the grazing animals can. But they eat a lot of the grass and a lot of the grass. They chicken manure is really good fertilizer. So they're putting that down on the soil as well. And we right now we just do one batch of 50 birds at a time. And so we kind of like to use them and we've got a pretty large yard around the house. And so we kind of keep them in that area. It works well for it. And they do all that chicken manure definitely fertilizes the lawn and keeps it nice and green and keeps the the grass growing really well. Yeah. My friend came over um, last week and she was like, wow, your grass was all dead when you moved in here. I thought it was kind of a dump, but it's looking really good. (laughs) I'm like, it's the chickens. So we can run um, chickens finish out really quickly, like between eight and 10 weeks. So we can run about three batches a year. Um, This year, we're going to build another second chicken tractor and we're going to try to get five batches done. So it'll help pick up our production on chicken a little bit. Do you have a certain... breed of chicken that you prefer with doing what you're doing? We just use um, Cornish Cross, which is the type of chickens that they have bred for commercial production, um, just because they they grow well. And they have like large breasts, large breasts, a lot of meat on it. And they do well. And we don't see a lot of health issues since they're consuming so much of their diet as grass. So that really helps to keep them healthy. And um, they don't grow near as fast as they would in a in a commercial system and so that slow growth really helps to keep them healthy and they don't have the health issues that you would see in you know the large chicken barns uh, where they're raising thousands of birds at a time in them so have you also noticed a lot less uh, health problems with your cattle as well uh i would say yeah but um really the types of systems that i've always raised cows in my entire life have been pasture-based systems, not really feedlots as much. So I've never really had a health issue with cattle in the past, but for sure, we treat our cows a lot less than we do. And, you know, even at the the university farm that I run, and it's a pasture-based system as well. You know, we don't give them extra antibiotics or anything like that, a lot less for vaccinations and whatnot too. So, and they've 
been at least as healthy, if not more so. So So what is it like running a CSA? We're really enjoying it. Um, I feel like it has um, built this community of like-minded people and they they like um, our CSA members, they'll send me uh, text messages like with pictures all the time. Like maybe every other day I get a picture from somebody they're like, making some pork chops or some steaks and they want to show me pictures or here's my plate of breakfast with your egg. It's just, it's a nice way to do business. I think compared to a lot of farmers, they just produce their product and they ship it off and that's the end of it. They don't ever talk to the people who are consuming it. So yeah, it's just built a nice community. And another thing for us too, is that it gives us a consistent cash flow and Um, So we know exactly how many people we're going to supply with meat through the CSA. And it's something that we can rely on. And so that really helps with the um, economics of our system here. And and then knowing that that cash is coming in at that time each month. So it's really, it helps us with planning and everything like that. So yeah, if we only had the farm store, we might be like, are we going to make $5 next month? Are we going to make a million dollars next month? (laughs) Probably closer to $5. (laughs) (laughs) Could you describe what a CSA is and then how your CSA works? So um, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the community supporting their local agriculture. And um, so ours is a monthly, mostly meat um, CSA. So we deliver it monthly or some people want to do every other month. And so they either for they don't want to have the monthly expense or they don't eat that much meat. We actually have a couple of customers who are kind of coming out of being a vegetarian for health reasons, and they're wanting to start incorporating some meat, um, some of our eggs too. And, you know, they, they're they not comfortable eating it every day though. So they just want a little bit. Um, yeah, I just deliver it to their door, 25 pounds a month for $300. And then we also have, I always throw in extra stuff. Like right now, everybody's getting eggs. Sometimes I'll make a loaf of sourdough bread or I'll make something like um, some yogurt, um, which I can't actually sell stuff like that in the farm store. Um, and everybody knows like this was made in my home kitchen. It's not in a commercial kitchen, all approved, but they, they're all fine with it. Um, but I can add things like that into it because they're buying a share of the farm. So um, what have been some of the challenges that you've faced? Maybe, you know, getting the word out initially or financial hurdles. I You've mentioned a little bit about the reason the CSA works, but my, what might be some other challenges? Our challenges are probably similar to most people who are farming and haven't just inherited a farm. Land is so, so expensive. So we would love to own a thousand acres, but like, where would we have to go to, like, there's nowhere we could really afford that. Land expenses are expensive. Yeah. So, uh, you know, kind of a unique thing about our operation is we have haven't borrowed money to start it. So mm-hmm. it's made it so that we've had to grow a little bit slower. Um, but it's really nice that we don't have a lot of debt on top of that. And so that's always kind of been a challenge just trying to ramp it up enough without ha- borrowing money to, to do that. So 
Um, in the beginning, it grew pretty slowly, and recently the word has gotten out a little bit more, and we've really seen a, a lot of growth just this last spring, which has been nice. So, and luckily, we've kind of had we've built up enough capital in the system that we've been able to accommodate that growth too. So, and that's really been nice. But I definitely say the the growth there, and then you know, I mean, just normal things with production, drought, and uncertainty, and that sort of stuff, weather concerns, and whatnot. So, um, Luke working full time. And- and then coming home and working another four or five hours in the day and us having six children, that's definitely a big challenge. Like some days it's totally fine and some days it's like very tiring. So I bet. So what are maybe some misconceptions that people might have about raising cattle sustainably? I was actually um, in the checkout line at Whole Foods a few weeks ago and the person in front of me bought um, a bunch of the uh, Impossible Burgers and um, so I, after they left, I, I asked the cashier, like, like what he thought about them and stuff. And he was like, he's like, yeah, I mean, they don't taste as good, but, um, I mean, cows, they're like with all the, the gases, like they're clearly going to be ruining the earth if we continue eating beef. So I think it's a good thing. I was like, okay, okay. I'll just like, let it go. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people think that they are going to be ruining the earth. They certainly can, depending on how they're being raised. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. And I think it's important to remember, though, too, that grazing animals have always been a part of the system and deer here in the uh, in North America. But like in Africa, there's all sorts of grazing animals there, antelope, buffalo and, and elephants and whatnot. And so really, I think it's they they have to be part of the system in order for the system to work properly. And so really, as producers, we're just trying to make it as close to that model as possible so that it's not having a negative impact on the environment. Uh, But really, we want to make a positive impact on the environment. That's really what regenerative regenerative agriculture is all about, is trying to to have that positive impact on um, the land that we are managing. You know, one thing that sometimes I've heard brought up, and uh, I guess what I'm thinking, I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but some people are concerned that uh, raising cattle uses a lot of water. But at the same time, when I think of sustainable agriculture, I think of building soil, and when you build up soil, it retains moisture and you're actually maybe regenerating the water into the into the aquifers. What, what are your thoughts about that? I'm sure a lot of those numbers that they're citing are coming from growing grain to finish them in the feedlots. We use hardly any water at our place. Right. So uh, the majority of our um, pasture that we graze is like sub-irrigated meadow, but just the nature of the system that that we utilize. I mean, it's the water that irrigates those meadows is all runoff from the mountain, from the snowpack that has accumulated there over the winter. And really the, the way it works out is we divert really not that much water at all. And it kind of just subs through itself. So I can imagine that prior to settlement of this area, this whole area was probably um, a sub-irrigated meadow naturally. And so um, really, I don't think it's using any more water than it did originally. And, um, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying there too. The regenerative practices, when you're adding that organic matter to the soil and you're keeping that soil covered with the forage, you're not grazing it too short to where the sun can get down to the soil surface and dry it out. You're actually retaining a lot more water into the system because um, with all that extra organic matter, the water can infiltrate into the soil better. The soil holds that water better so it's available for the plants to use. And then with making sure that we keep armor over the soil, 
well with some litter and, and plenty of forage growing there that blocks the sun, it doesn't evaporate nearly as quickly as it would if you didn't have that cover on the soil. And so it's maintaining that moisture into the soil longer. So it's actually, I think it's keeping the soil in the or the water in the soil where it's supposed to be. So um, I think it's really helping with the the water issue there. Excellent. So what are some of the ways that you have been enjoying some of the rewards of your business, the satisfaction of what you're doing? Uh, well, part of the reason that we started is because we wanted to raise our own meat. So we've really been enjoying um, that high quality meat that we've been producing here. And, you know, for us, we like the taste of it a lot better. We think that it cooks nicer. It's much more juicy, uh, much more flavorful. Um, and it's really been helping, you know, our pocketbook that we're not having to go and, and spend a ton of money at, for meat at the grocery store. It's been great for the kids too. It's a nice way to raise a family. So if your ideas and your experience and wisdom were all wrapped up into new seeds of potential action for other people and other places, what advice would you give to someone who's considering doing this? Maybe one of the first things I would say is I think the toughest thing for us might've been just getting it started, taking that leap of faith and um, just getting into it and not falling victim to all the reasons you could think of why you shouldn't be doing it and just and starting off that might have been a big hurdle for us in the beginning and just trusting that you know it's going to work out and and we're going to be doing something that we'd love to do Mm -hmm. I'd say at least for um the kind of farming that we're doing we always have to put the grass first I mean that doesn't mean we would ever like neglect animals but if you put them first and not the grass and the soil then you kind of have it backwards. And if you put the environment and the grass first, then it just becomes this bounty that you can grow and you can have more on a smaller amount of property. So as we wrap up, what resources maybe that would you suggest to other people, a book, website, or film that has been particularly helpful? We got a lot out of the stuff that Jill Salatin has done. So um, he's written a lot of books that you can get. There's just a lot of videos and stuff about him on YouTube. So um, those are always easy to get a hold of and consume information that way. So do you have any projects or anything that you would like to share with other people in the nation? Or We're, we're, just, we're just working on, uh, we just get more animals each year. And um, we just put up a hoop house uh, last week. And so we're um, trying to get the raised beds all put in there. Um, we meant to do it sooner, but it's kind of the story of our life. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll at least get to grow into the fall. And I mean, we could even grow lettuce and stuff um, through the winter. But yeah, yeah. So that's kind of our, our latest project. So for people who might want to reach out to you, how would you like to be contacted? Um, we have a website and a blog, uh, blusterybovine.com. And um, it has my phone number on there, or you can email me. And um, yeah, people send me text messages a lot, which is fine. Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe to this show so we can send you monthly episodes and keep you up to date on opportunities for eco-friendly living in Northern Nevada. For now, please take good care of you and yours, stay well, and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all.